0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks.
1: On today's show on State Terror, we'll take a look at what happens to people held in prison who are violated and harmed there, what resources they can turn to, how do those resources actually work, if at all, and what does it mean for us as a society that once people are locked away, their well-being is, in many cases, ignored? We'll take a deep dive into the way New York State has handled cases of sexual assault of prisoners by guards. A note for listeners, we will not be using graphic descriptions of sexual violence in the show, but we will refer to some of those experiences in order to understand how the prison system functions to essentially cover up its violence against prisoners. Our guest today is Victoria Law, a freelance journalist who focuses on the intersections of incarceration, gender, and resistance. She's also the author of Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration and the co-author of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. Her latest article published by The Intercept is Blind Spots, Sexual Assault Allegation Exposes Self-Policing Prison System. Vicky, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for covering this.
1: So, the through line of your latest piece in The Intercept is the case of Robert Adams, a man imprisoned in New York State who has claimed with eyewitnesses that he was sexual assault, sexually assaulted by prison guards. Vicki, how did Robert Adams' case draw your attention, and without getting too descriptive, what does he ha- say happened to him?
2: Okay. So, um, I want to add that uh, this... Piece, um, blind spots was actually published in partnership with New York Focus, which is a scrappy investigative uh, news site based in New York State. And Robert Adams had already been in touch with another reporter at New York Focus about COVID conditions when he was sexually assaulted in May of 2021 um, by a sergeant or you know somebody in a higher up position than just a correctional officer. Um, that afternoon, on May nineteenth, twenty twenty-one, he was on his way to lunch when he saw two officers outside the cell of another man. They seemed to be berating this other man um, for a, over a mistake that he had made. Mr. Adams attempted to intervene, um, defuse the situation, and instead he was beaten up, and then the officers dragged him. To uh, Sallyport, which is sort of like a vestibule, in which you know, a space between two doors, which close, and there he was sexually assaulted by uh, by a sergeant who was there. Um, several men witnessed the physical assault, and one of the men witnessed the sexual assault, and then they were all charged with a variety of prison rules violations placed in solitary confinement, and later transferred. Um, Right after he was beaten up and sexually assaulted, Mr. Adams uh, asked to go to the medical clinic in the prison. And before taking him there, he said that the officers brought him to a holding cell, gave him a new pair of boxers, and ordered him to change into them so that there would be no evidence of his sexual assault, and threatened to kill him if he reported the assault. Because he had already been sexually assaulted, uh, Mr. Adams was understandably terrified. Uh, and he, when he went to the medical clinic, he told this medical staff that he had been beaten up and did not mention the sexual assault. Two days later, after he had been transferred to a different prison, he felt safe enough to ask for, um, to tell an officer that he had been sexually assaulted and to request a sexual assault forensic exam which the New York State prison system, like many prison systems, are supposed to offer to people who say they have been sexually assaulted um, immediately. He was not offered a safe exam or a sexual assault forensic exam, and instead medical staff said, um, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with you, uh, and dismissed his concerns. So he never received medical attention, he never received a forensic exam, um, even though, New York State prison system rules dictate that that is the policy that should be followed. He filed a complaint, an official complaint with the prison system, and he spoke to an investigator in August, so several months later, about what had happened and gave this investigator the names of at least six other witnesses to this. When I spoke to these witnesses, to three of these witnesses in 2022, over a year after this had happened, Three of them said that no investigator had ever come and spoken to them, even though the complaint was closed as unsubstantiated, meaning the investigator says that they cannot find enough evidence that this has happened.
1: Wow. Um, So you referenced two different times that there were witnesses once in that you were able to follow up with them. But earlier you said all of the people who witnessed this assault were transferred to other prisons and or put into solitary confinement. Can you talk a little bit more about how that played out?
2: Yes. So after Mr. Adams was assaulted, um, he was was brought to the medical clinic and he was placed in solitary confinement. Um, The other men who had witnessed The physical assault and the one who had witnessed the physical and the sexual assault were also all charged with a variety of prison rules violations, such as creating a disturbance, um, protesting, which is illegal in prison, um, threatening staff, uh, and also placed in solitary confinement. And they were also, for the most part, transferred to different prisons across the state, thus making it more difficult perhaps to, for, um, for them to be tracked down if, say, Mr. Adams didn't know what their full names were. If you just know that Anthony saw, your, um, saw what happened, but you don't know anything more like his state ID number or his last name, it would be harder to track him down or call him as a witness. Um, so as is, I was able to track down and speak with three of those witnesses, um, again, who had been scattered to different prisons, throughout the state and all of them corroborated what Mr. Adams had reported um, and what they had seen and also confirmed that no investigator ever came to speak with them about that assault.
1: So I just want to be clear when you talk about these prisoners who were transferred for rules violations of some Mm -hmm. kind, are you suggesting that the rules violations were not real and that they Because they witnessed uh, this, that they were transferred to avoid building up uh, a case against those prison guards? Or were those transfers totally separate?
2: So in prisons in New York and in other states, people can be transferred without being given a reason. so they can you know, be transferred because they need to be closer to home or because they need to be in you know, a facility that can accommodate see, they, their medical needs or their disability needs. Um, but they can also just be transferred and never told why. Um, many advocates, including currently and in formerly incarcerated people, talk about how transfers are also used as punishment or to get rid of people who are seen as troublemakers, whether it's because they are getting into what John Lewis, the late John Lewis called good trouble and trying to organize or challenge abusive prison conditions, or if they are getting into not so good trouble and just causing lots of trouble inside the prison. Um, so in this case, all of the men believe they were transferred as part of a cover-up. So that that way they would not be able to testify um, on Mr. Adams's behalf, they would be less inclined to report what they had seen, and it would be harder to track down for someone like me or another advocate to track them down because they would not all be in the same place. And again, if you don't know, say that uh, Reginald Wilson and Anthony Davis saw this, but you only know that some guy named Reggie and some guy named Tony saw this assault, and you don't know their last name or where they went or their state ID numbers, it is a lot more difficult to find these witnesses and have them talk.
1: We are in conversation with Victoria Law, an investigative journalist and author whose latest report for The Intercept is titled Blind Spots, Sexual Assault Allegation Exposes Self-Policing Prison System. Now, Vicky, I'm wondering if we can get more into the, the resources that at least under policy name, are available to people. I know that you mentioned that Mr. Adams did seek basic medical services and basic services in response to being sexually assaulted in prison, but those services did not materialize for him. What services are supposed to be there?
2: So... New York State, um, New York State's prison system has adopted the prison uh, PREA guidelines, Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is a federal law that says that prisons and jails must actually take reports of sexual abuse and sexual assault seriously, and there should be a number of steps taken. In New York, this means that if somebody says they have been sexually assaulted, the prison or the jail must provide them with a sexual assault forensic exam. So this is an exam that. Uh, you know, like basically gathers evidence around being sexually assaulted or raped in New York. This is not done inside the prison. He would have to, uh, people are transferred to outside hospitals for these exams. Mr. Adams was never brought to an outside hospital, um, for this exam. Uh, and it has to happen within 72 to maybe 92 hours. It can't happen months and months later because then whatever, you know, evidence there is would be gone is also, uh, survivors of sexual abuse and sexual assault are also supposed to receive counseling, um, rape crisis counseling and, um, different prisons partner with different rape crisis centers on the outside, um, to provide those services. And Mr. Adams said that every time he started the intake process, so in New York, you call 777 from a prison phone, and you're connected to a rape crisis center, which then directs you to whatever the nearest center is that partners with the prison. And you begin an intake process so that you can be matched with a rape crisis counselor who can then, um, you know, work with you through this very traumatic experience. And every time Mr. Adams began the 777 intake process, he was transferred to another prison, which meant that he then had to uh, call and start all over again, saying like, I was at Chawangunk and now I am in X prison, you know, and start with a new rape crisis center, start with a new intake process. And it was not until this year that he finally started receiving uh, rape crisis counseling for what had happened to him.
1: Can we talk for a moment a little bit more about the seven 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 phone line that's available to prisoners who are in new york state prisons mm-hmm. in In your piece, you talked about the difference between how many seven 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 calls are made from prisoners and how many are actually investigated and And my understanding is also that the seven 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 phone number is a nonprofit line. It's not run by the prison system. That said, I just want to take a moment and recognize that it seems like sexual assault in this context is so prevalent in New York state prisons that this phone number exists in the first place.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, So yes, you're right. 777 is not operated by the prison system. It is operated by an outside um, rape crisis organization that then partners with um regional rape crisis centers around the state to provide these services and in 2019 there were 3338 calls to 777 from New York State prisons um, what the Department of the New York State Department of Corrections records in terms of complaints about sexual assault were 481 complaints of staff sexual abuse and assault and 149 complaints of, Uh, incarcerated people being sexually assaulted or abused by other incarcerated people for a grand total of 630. That is a wild disparity, 630 versus 3,338. And that is because people in prisons often do not come forward to report sexual assault, just like people on the outside do not come forward. But in prison, their fears are understandably heightened because they fear that they may not be believed. If the person who sexually assaulted or abused them is a staff member, they know that that person has literally the keys to their cells um, and has the ability to dictate how they will serve their time, how uncomfortable or miserable they might be, whether they are thrown in solitary confinement, Uh, and you also have to depend on all of that person's colleagues. You know, for everything, including when you can leave your cell, whether you can get to the phone or if your family members who have come to see you will be waiting a long time or any of the other myriad needs that people have both inside and outside of prison. So there is this sense that um, people are afraid of re- to report because of retaliation. And then people see things like what happens with Mr. Adams and they say, well, why should I report? I just won't be believed. What is stunning in this case is that this assault happened in front of several witnesses and it was still closed as unsubstantiated, meaning that the investigators say they cannot find enough evidence to prove that the incident occurred. They're not saying that it is unfounded, which means they think that you made it up, a person made up the allegation and um, it just never happened. They're saying... We did not find enough evidence, even though, again, there were several witnesses who could attest to this, and Mr. Adams had asked for a sexual assault forensic exam on at least two occasions.
1: You mentioned earlier that the sexual assault forensic exam is meant to happen within 72 hours of the incident, but of course, we're talking about a system that does not necessarily respond quickly in general to prisoners' needs.
2: Yes. Yes. And, um, it was 72 hours and I spoke with a sexual assault forensic exam nurse, um, to just make sure that all of my, uh, you know, understanding of what they do was correct. And she actually said it actually could be up to 90 something hours, um, depending on, you know, a variety of things. So they were well within the timeline by the time Mr. Adams was requesting had been transferred to a different prison in which he felt safe enough to ask for that exam. He was still well within the 72-hour to 90-something-hour window um, where he could have gotten a sexual assault forensic exam. And even if he had not been within that time period, that they just said no, or they just dismissed him and told him he looked okay, um, is just astounding. And if we think about this, it is A funhouse mirror gross exaggeration of the way that we treat sexual assault on the outside, and it's just grossly distorted and magnified while in prison.
1: So one thing that makes Robert Adams' case specific and unique is that we're actually discussing it right now and that you published an article about his case Do you imagine coming out of the publication of it that's quite a bit of an expose with with many details that things will move in some other type of direction for him?
2: I am hoping so, and I believe so, because in August of 2021, so three months after um, the assault happened, uh, he was interviewed by uh, an investigator from the prison, uh, the Office of Special Investigations, which, interview, which is supposed to investigate claims of physical and sexual assault, um, he gave the investigator the names of the witnesses. And then in December of 2021, he was given he was sent a letter in which the investigator said that his complaint was found unsubstantiated. When I spoke with the witness with three of the witnesses the following year, they all said they had never been contacted by an investigator about what had happened. Nobody ever came to interview them. In October of 2022, um, I contacted the Department of Corrections. So almost a year, more than a year after he had spoken to the investigator and almost one year after his complaint was closed as unsubstantiated, I contacted both New York Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Department of Corrections. And I said, I'm looking into the, I'm investigating the story. Um, here are the allegations. Do you have comment? And three days later, at least two of the three men who had said that nobody had ever spoken to them said that investigators had come to interview them. One man was already out on parole, and the investigator found him at his home and interviewed him about what he had witnessed. So it seems that outside scrutiny, outside attention, you know, is causing some ripples. The Department of Corrections declined to comment on the specific allegations. It simply said, the spokesperson simply said, "Um, we are investigating any and all allegations. When I asked if this meant that the case had been reopened, they declined to say. Um, But the fact that people who had not heard from anyone about this for one and a half years were suddenly getting visits suggests that perhaps there is something moving um in Mr. Adams's case.
1: You're listening to Law and Disorder and we're in conversation with Victoria Law. Vicky it is it it it's heartening to hear that there's some level of real investigation going on with this man's case because of the outside scrutiny that you just described um of course the outside scrutiny which in many ways is your own coverage makes his case unique i'm wondering how much do you understand his case to be reflective of the experiences of prisoners in the country in general who've experienced abuse sexual or otherwise by guards
2: in some, cases, in some ways, his case is unique in that there are witnesses. Most of the time when people are sexually assaulted or abused in prisons, it happens in spots where there are no witnesses. Um, he was willing to come forward and speak with me multiple times. He was willing to sign off on me being able to access records, which um, some of which I was able to get and some of which um, the Department of Corrections has still not answered my request for some of these records um he was willing to put me in touch with the men who had witnessed so in that instance it is his case is fairly exceptional because there were witnesses because he was willing to come forward because he was willing to put his name out there because he did not want this to go on you know to go unaddressed and he did not want other people to have to go through this he does not want the prison system to continue to police itself and not hold people accountable um, for their, for their violence against others. And then in other cases, his, what happened to him is fairly common in which people who are incarcerated report sexual assault and their claims are not taken seriously. They request medical care and they don't get it. Um, they try to get counseling and there are numerous barriers for them to be able to get Um, counseling. And then if they are complaining against a staff member, they face retaliation as well. Um, Being put in solitary confinement, um, being charged with violations of prison rules, which could affect um, a variety of things like their ability to um, like their chances at parole if they are parole eligible. Um, It could affect, you know, like their ability to get into certain programs if they Are trying to get into certain educational or vocational programs or other types of programs that require you to have a clean prison record. So these are ways in which people are deterred from reporting. And then there's the fact that Mr. Adams reached out to New York Focus and The Intercept because nobody in the prison was taking his complaints seriously. I mean, most people who are sexually assaulted do not want to go around broadcasting the fact that they had been sexually assaulted. They don't want to have to you know, be on the news about this and have this uh, broadcast to everybody um, and their mother. But he felt that he did not have other recourse. And that is something that is endemic, not only in New York state prisons, but in prisons and jails and immigrant detention centers and other places of lockup around the country.
1: That's the voice of Victoria Law, an investigative journalist and author whose latest report for The Intercept is titled Blind Spots, a Sexual Assault Allegation Exposes Self-Policing Prison System. You're talking about the the endemic violence in prisons, um, and it, it makes me think about this piece that you referenced in your article referring to a 2014 Department of Justice study that says that nearly half of sexual abuse allegations made in prisons across the country are against correctional officers and prosecutions are rare. One of the pieces that particularly surprised me is that about a third of officers who've been accused of abuse are allowed to resign before investigations are completed. And specifically because they quit before the investigation is finished, there's no public records stating their alleged abuse, mm-hmm. meaning they're able to apply for jobs at other prisons. Am I reading this right? That there's no record keeping that follows prison guards if someone is not, uh, if, if the case is not fully prosecuted?
2: If the, if the investigation is not completed. So there's a difference between the investigation being completed, let alone referred to outside prosecution. So say if we take Mr. Adams's case, if you know the investigator had been looking into this accusation of sexual assault and the sergeant who sexually assaulted him felt that he might actually be, uh, you know, be found the, if that the complaint would be substantiated or meaning that the investigator felt that this had happened, that sergeant could choose to resign so that that way there is no record because you don't so you don't give people incomplete records. Oh, this person was accused of this, but we never finished our investigation. Um, instead what ends up happening is that it is just never put on their record, um, to begin with. So they can then go and apply someplace else. And there's nothing that lingers on a background check that says this Sergeant was in 2021 found to have sexually assaulted a person in custody or this person, Um, in this year was found to have uh, sexually abused a person in custody. So that record does not get completed and thus does not end up following them around. So yes, you're correct in that they could go on to apply for another job and that other job might not know that they have these accusations against them.
1: Can we talk for a moment about how intense and dramatic that is? I mean, in the outside world and by outside, I mean not in prisons. If someone makes a legal claim that they are sexually assaulted by a very specific person, and they have witnesses of that assault, there is some, well, if police officer, police organizations function the way that Mm -hmm. they're intended to, there's some level of investigation that happens. Now, who knows if charges are filed or not but it sounds like what we're talking about is that if prison if the same thing happens to a prisoner by prison guards in 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 this case we're talking about New York prisons but it sounds like this is pretty broadly across the spectrum of prisons in this country that if a prison guard who committed one of these abuses leaves their position before any charges are filed they're just good to go is that right it it just sounds so intense and dramatic i want to underline that
2: yes yes i mean this is horrifying because it means then they can go and be in another position of power over somebody else in some other system And nobody has any awareness that this person has potential red flags.
1: And in that vein, can you talk a little bit about the guards who are named in Robert Adams' allegation?
2: Yes, yes. So um, Robert Adams names two guards in his allegations. And he names these two because these are the two whose name tags he could see. There were other people there. Um, but he did not have complete names, it was, you know, and we were unable to then verify whether or not, you know, like who participated in what. Um, but the person who sexually assaulted him um, is a sergeant and has had several complaints lodged against him. So in November of 2010, he was um, accused of physically assaulting another incarcerated man. Um, and that investigators closed as unsubstantiated. Again, not saying that it was unfounded, which would have meant that they thought that the person had made up the, uh, the assault, but unsubstantiated, meaning that they could not get enough evidence to verify that this had happened. Um, in 2018, in a different prison, he was accused of being part of a group assault against, of officers against an incarcerated person That too was unsubstantiated. And then in January of 2020, and these are all records that the Department of Corrections kept. um, So this is their own records. I didn't go digging through his trash to find these things. Um, He was accused of inappropriate sexual behavior with a trainee. So basically he was training somebody and um, supposedly was sexually inappropriate with her. The records do not specify, um, the records that I was able to access did not specify what exactly happened, but it was serious enough that the New York state prison system suspended him for inappropriate conduct and for, I quote, false statements during the course of an investigation, meaning they were saying he lied to investigators when they asked him what had happened. the New York State prison system attempted to fire him. But here in New York State, just like in California, the prison officers union is very strong. And he reached out to his union and they filed a grievance. And instead of him being terminated or, you know, fired, um, the Department of Corrections and him reached a settlement agreement in which he was temporarily demoted and transferred to a different prison and he was allowed to resume work. He was not given a desk job in which he would not ever have to be around other people who were in a more vulnerable position, such as incarcerated people or um, people who were new trainees on the job. He was just put in a different prison. and later in 2020, after he had been reinstated, there was another complaint about him harassing an incarcerated person in retaliation because that person had complained about another officer. So, and then we fast forward to May of 2021 and he is um, he is part of a physical assault on Mr. Adams. And then according to Mr. Adams, was also the person who sexually assaulted him. Um, again, all after you know, these other allegations had happened and after the prison system had reinstated him.
1: You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and we're in conversation with Victoria Law, an investigative journalist and author whose latest report for the Intercept is titled Blind Spot: Sexual Assault Allegation Exposes Self-Policing Prison System. Vicki, let's zoom out for a few minutes. Um, In your article, you reference a New York state bill that went to legislators in early 2021 that would allow the attorney general there, who doesn't work directly for the prison system, to investigate staff misconduct as well as to create an independent ombudsman. That bill did not get passed, or at least has not yet been passed, what's the resistance to that bill and if it or something like it were to pass do you feel that prisoners would actually have better recourse
2: i think well that's a wonderful two part question part of it of that resistance is people don't want to be seen as quote unquote soft on crime or soft on people in prison so what so there's this idea especially among politicians that you cannot be seen as being cuddly or soft or you know somehow sympathetic to what uh to the abuse to people who are abused while in prison it just does not seem to them as if it is good uh for your political career um that said also um so I think that that is a large part of the resistance is it gets shelved because people don't want to be seen as supporting quote-unquote criminals um another part of it is that um We as a society don't take sexual assault all that seriously, so we should not be surprised that we take sexual assault behind bars even less seriously. Um, But if this bill were to move forward, it is currently languishing in the Senate's Committee on Crime, Crime Victims and Corrections, which should tell you volumes about the focus of that committee, which is not... uh, improving prison conditions or uh, ending abuses in prisons mm-hmm. um, but if this bill were to move out of that committee and be voted on and pass I think there would still have to there would still have to be a cultural shift in which people who are incarcerated would know that their complaints would be taken seriously so they would have to see that other people who speak up, had their complaints taken seriously, and that something happened. Something happened besides they were charged with a bunch of rules violations and put in solitary confinement and harassed by that staff member or that officer's colleagues. They would have to see that some positive change happens when they report, not just that they are retaliated against and they never even get the satisfaction of somebody saying, you're right, that happened.
1: I mean, you were talking just a moment ago about politicians not wanting to be seen as supporting criminals or being soft on crime or soft on people in prison. The way you described it, it rings as not wanting to recognize basic human rights. I mean, we're talking about people literally paid by the state, allegedly at least, abusing and sexually assaulting these people,
2: yes, yes, and I mean, what we what this underscores is how much people on the outside, or legislators, or the general public, does not see the humanity of people who are incarcerated. It seems like once people are behind bars, whether they are arrested um, and awaiting trial, or they have been convicted and sentenced to prison, they are not willing to see that these are still people, and they are not willing to recognize their humanity, and instead there's this idea that you've done something wrong, so if something bad happens to you, why should I care? And first of all, people are not sent to prison to be sexually assaulted. This actually is not in any penal code in the United States that says, too bad, so sad. This is what happens to you if you are convicted of any of the bazillion uh, criminal statutes that we have currently have on the books. And secondly, people who are in prison are still other people's sons, grandsons, brothers, husbands, cousins, you know, community members, and the majority of people in prisons will come home one day. And so there needs to be the question of, do you want people to come back traumatized and emotionally and physically damaged from years of not only neglect, but also Um, all of these abuses that happen inside, including being sexually assaulted, or do you want people to be able to come back and have healthier, more productive, however you want to define more productive, in this case, lives, um, instead of coming back as people who have been so damaged by their experiences that they really are going to need much more help getting back on their feet and being able to reintegrate into society. But that is a larger question that doesn't fit into a three second soundbite that a politician can use during their, during their uh, campaign speech. I mean, we just came out of an election season in which crime was whipped up into all sorts of uh, furor so that politicians could try to garner votes or steal votes away from other politicians.
1: So the the mission of this show is to expose, agitate, and build. And we try to end our interviews on the building side and trying to imagine how something could look differently. You and I have talked today about the lack of accountability in these stories. In addition to being a journalist, you've also been an outspoken abolitionist for many years. I'm wondering if you could spend a moment reflecting on how we could imagine resources provided and, let's say, in in the interim, before prisons are abolished, what could strong resources and accountability actually look like?
2: I think it could look like taking sexual abuse and sexual assault allegations seriously. If you're going to have um, an institution such as a prison um, and abuses happen, not have that institution police itself and investigate itself, but instead have Not only people from the outside coming in to investigate, but also people coming in to provide services because being sexually abused or sexually assaulted is a traumatic experience. We understand this. We supposedly understand this on the outside and people are supposed to be offered things like rape crisis counseling, medical services, um, you know, other services that they might need to help them heal. And we don't do that. People in prison. So it could look like having those types of resources. It could also look like sending fewer people to prison because if you have fewer people in prison, you have fewer people at risk of being victimized, uh, both sexually and physically, because they are in these highly vulnerable positions. Um, So we could start with those things and then build from there. And then on the outside, it should be because, again, these. Officers that participated in this all came from the outside. They, they did not come up, you know, grown in a laboratory. They actually came from outside society, you know, challenging this idea that you can use sexual assault as some sort of punishment, you know, so that that way there isn't this prevalent idea that it's okay to inflict this kind of harm and violence on somebody.
1: Vicki, we're going to have to end on that note. We are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yes, and thank you for having me, as always.
1: Our guest today, Victoria Law, is a freelance journalist who focuses on the intersections of incarceration, gender, and resistance. Her latest article, published by The Intercept, is Blind Spots Sexual Assault Allegation Exposes Self Policing Prison System. And you can find it on a link on our website. That's kpfa.org. And look for the Law and Disorder section.
0: If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.